Welcome, everybody. Night number eight. Three quarters of the way to the new Bible if you've been here every night. Almost there. So Monday night, we talked about the Sabbath, Revelation's eternal sign. And then Tuesday night, we talked about history's greatest religious cover-up. Well, answered that question. Well, if Saturday's the Sabbath, why do so many people go on Sunday? So we spent an entire session going through why. And the whole theme of this series is this great controversy theme. Who are you going to worship? The battle is always over worship, right? You're going to worship the Lord or are you going to worship Satan? Those are the two choices, remember? And those are the only two choices. The one thing I want to stress is it's not just a Sabbath message. All of these messages build on each other. They're foundational. They're like building blocks. And you're going to find as we go through this Sabbath question is going to be very important in some of these prophecies we're going to talk about as this series goes on. It's going to be an important factor in some of these end-time prophecies. Not that it's not important. The Lord asked us to do it. Gave us a gift, right? But it's not, it's not the only reason. There's much more. It's all intertwined in this whole seminar. So tonight, Revelation's time of the end. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy challenged the Congress of the United States. He said, I believe this nation should commit itself to achieving the goal before this decade is out of landing a man on the moon and returning him safely to earth. That's kind of, an, kind of a nice second part to that, right? If we get him out, he didn't say if we get him out on the moon, we're good. We don't care if he comes back. <laughs> safely coming. I'm sure the astronauts appreciated that qualification. It was a bold and audacious goal. And when President Kennedy said these words in 1961, the goal seemed unlikely. But less than a decade later, July the 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong stepped foot on the moon, 235,000 miles from Earth. In less than 10 years, America had done something thought impossible. Along with Michael Collins, Edwin Buzz Aldrin, and Armstrong, they flew to the moon aboard Apollo 11. It took them about four days to get there. They traveled 80,000 miles a day, or 4,000 miles an hour. Then Aldrin Armstrong spent almost an entire day on the moon, almost one whole day. They were the very first men to ever leave footsteps there. They landed on the moon in a lunar module named the Eagle. When they landed, Neil Armstrong uttered those memorable words, the Eagle has landed. Even if you weren't alive then, you've heard those words describe this event. And as he stepped off the eagle onto the surface of the moon, Armstrong said that that's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And those words have also been immortalized in history. A message to the world from outer space. Tonight we're going to look at a message of tremendous importance that came to this planet from beyond the stars. We're going to discover that God has a message to this world for these very last days in history. That message is the book of Revelation, a book that focuses on Christ. I've been talking about this every night. The book of Revelation reveals Christ. In Revelation 13, 3, we're going to find a remarkable prophecy that speaks of a beast who seeks to lead the world. It says, all the world wondered or followed after the beast. And all but a very few worshipped that beast. In a very sharp contrast to this, in the next, very next chapter, in Revelation chapter 14, 
we find a prophecy which in its final message to God, to this hurting world, to his people, it's a message of mercy. That God says the whole world must hear. This message must go to everybody. It's a message from beyond the stars. Directing the attention of the world to God's Son. That message is directing us to Jesus Christ. Let's open our Bibles to Revelation chapter 14. Page 1183. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. It starts off. And I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So the Bible says that this everlasting gospel, or this eternal or final gospel, this final message, is proclaimed in this book of Revelation. Friends, this is the very last message from God. The last gospel message that goes to the whole world. This is the last message that he's to give us. In the book of Revelation, an angel represents a messenger. And I know you were, you were giving out a handout about symbols, and that's going to be in there. There's a whole bunch of symbols in there that you're going to see as the seminar keeps going on. So that's why you got that handout. But right now we're going to talk about an angel. An angel represents a messenger. So here's a messenger depicted as flying in the midst of heaven, way up high where we cannot help but to see this messenger. And then it speaks with a loud voice declaring the word of God. It's declaring this gospel message to all the world. Everybody has to hear this message, this everlasting gospel, the good news. A few nights ago, we talked about some of the signs of the Bible told us that describe the imminence of the return of Christ, the signs of Christ's second coming, signs of the end, Amen. Well, here's another. In Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus says, And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus was telling us back in Matthew that this message has to go to the whole world before the end will come. So the everlasting gospel in Revelation 14 must be supremely important, seeing as God wants everyone to hear it. Before Jesus returns, it's that final good news message that's going out to the world. And what is the message of this messenger? Verse 7, keep, stay in Revelation 14. Saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the seas and the springs of water. So it says, fear God and give glory to him. Even though the Bible says that God is love, this angelic messenger tells us to fear God. Meaning to love God supremely and to serve him with your entire heart. Fear God and give glory to him. And then, like I said, the angel goes on. He says, because this hour of judgment has come. This is an important point. We're going to get back to that later tonight to find out what this is really about. What's this hour of judgment? And in Revelation 14, 7, continue with it, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. This is that seal of God that I've mentioned several nights. This is him putting his stamp on. This is my message. And he's showing you, he's revealing his authority. I created all of you and all of this. And that's what him stamping this message. This is in the context of his final message of mercy, 
his final message that must go to the whole world. This is a call to worship Christ. This final message is a, is a clarion call. Worship Christ. Worship the only being that deserves worship, that's worthy of worship, based on his creating us. Remember, I've talked about this in a couple of messages. The Bible tells us clearly that Jesus was the creator of the world. He was the active creator of the world. All three of the parts of the Godhead were, part, were involved, but he did the actual creating. John chapter 1 verse 3 says, all things were made by him. Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says the same thing. Certainly the Father and the Spirit were involved, as I mentioned. But we are told that Jesus was that active agent in the actual creation. So when the final message says, worship him who made. This is in contrast to what we see in Revelation chapter 13 verse 3 and 4. Where that world, where the world wonders after that creature. That beast, in Revelation 13, it's talking about the world worshiping a creature, not a creator. In the final days of earth's history, the great crisis is going to center around the question of worship. That's that great controversy that you're going to hear me mention, message after message. Will we worship, as in Revelation 13, the beast? Or as in Revelation 14, the lamb? That's the choice. So there's a call to worship Christ now in these last days. John is revealing that message, that last call to the world. Choose who you're going to worship. It's a call to come to the foundation of Christ right now so you can resist the deceptions of the devil. And God's final message continues in verse 8. And another angel followed, saying, Babylon is fallen. It's fallen. That great city. So just like ancient Babylon fell during the lifetime, or I'm sorry, during the lifetime of the prophet Daniel, there's going to be a modern Babylon which will also fall. And I'm going to talk more about this later in the seminar. We're going to have an entire session talking about this modern-day Babylon. And then verse 9. Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength in the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Well, friends, this is a serious message, amen? The Bible's saying anyone who worships this beast and who receives the mark of that beast will not be saved. The Bible's clear. Friends, it doesn't get any plainer than that. God is not sending this message because he wants to exclude us from heaven or fill you with fear and dread. Go to verse 12. Verse 12 shows us why these messages are actually given. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. This message is given to produce a group of believers who have a saving faith in Jesus Christ and are ready to stand forever in the presence of God. That's what this message is for. It's to prepare a group of believers ready to receive Christ. Isn't that what we want? Amen. God sends these messages because he knows if we read them, if we understand them, if we follow them, and let them change our lives, 
we will be prepared to not receive that mark of the beast, but instead we'll receive the seal of the living God. Tonight we want to focus on one aspect of this threefold message. So if I go back to Revelation 14, verse 7, we just back up where, where we started, where it says, for the hour of his judgment has come. So fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. Friends, there's no need to fear judgment. You can face it with confidence, and you can face it successfully. If there's a judgment at all, it's going to find that we are guilty, amen? We've talked about this. We've all fallen short of the glory of God, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Paul tells us the wages of sin are death, right? We've gone through that. So if there's a judgment, it's going to find us guilty. But even though you're guilty, there's no need to fear this judgment. And that's the good news. That's the great news. This theme is found in many places throughout the Bible. But let's look at Daniel. Let's see what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 7. Page 864. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued, and he came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Daniel's telling us about an awe-inspiring scene of judgment. The Lord on his judgment throne. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, page 1114. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Who should appear? All. That each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, if you've committed a crime, you might hope that the judge or jury might not learn all the facts, right? Some things they might not know aren't going to hurt you. You might want to hide something from the prosecution, Right? But in God's courtroom, you can be certain that nothing is hidden. You can expect all the facts to be revealed. Turn me to Acts chapter 17, page 1072. Just a little bit back to the left. Acts chapter 17, verse 31. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. He will judge the world in righteousness. Paul's telling us that there is this judgment day coming. Paul's confirming that. There will be a judgment day. Turn with me now to Ecclesiastes, page 646. Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Verse 9.
wise man says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth. And let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart, in the sight of your eyes. Now, this sounds really good, right? Solomon's saying, live it up. Do whatever you want. But he doesn't stop there. But you, but know that for all these, God will bring you into judgment. Oh, sounded really good, didn't it? <laughs> he is telling it, you can live as, as however you want. You can live as if there's no God. You have that choice, that free will that I talk about. But one day, you will stand in judgment of God. There are consequences. This judgment scene is discussed throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Not one of those things that people say, well, I don't see that in the New Testament. Paul talks extensively about this throughout the New Testament. Solomon concludes the book of Ecclesiastes. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Now, this is, this is quite the conclusion. He's even telling you, we're going to conclude the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. That's that final message from the wise man, the wisest man who ever lived, the Bible tells us. Even the things you thought you got away with, the things that happened in the dark behind closed doors, we can't escape the all-seeing, all-searching eye of God. And in the judgment, we might have to meet with what we did. Now, here's how serious this is. When Daniel talks about the judgment in Daniel chapter 7, he talked about the fiery stream and the thousands and the ten thousands. He was, he was looking forward into time, way forward. But when John writes about it in Revelation chapter 14, he says, the hour of judgment has come. Revelation chapter 14. The hour of his judgment has come. So one of these days, remember, John was writing about end times. And we've established, given all the signs, given all the prophecies, that we're in end times right now. So one of these days, it will be said by the people living on earth, it is judgment time. Turn me to Revelation chapter 22. 1190. Last chapter of the Bible. Revelation 22, verse 12. I'd love to hear those pages turn. And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Notice Jesus is, this is Jesus talking. He's talking about his return, his second coming. He says, my reward is with me. Before Jesus returns, this means he has to decide which reward to give to each person. Amen? Which means one day, people living on the earth living in, will be living in the time of earth's judgment. It must take place before Jesus returns to earth. That's what he tells us. I'm going to be coming with my reward. Well, he's got to know what that reward is. We're going to have a whole night's message on that, too, coming up next week. So when will this judgment take place? God has set a date for the judgment, and it is found in the book of Daniel. Turn me back to Daniel, chapter 8 now, page 866. Daniel, chapter 8, verse 14. Daniel, chapter 8, 
verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Now, this might not be as easily identifiable as July 4th, 1776. But with a little work, we're going to see which date God has clearly given us. He said that at a certain time, the sanctuary will be cleansed. Right? 2,300 days. So what does that mean? The Bible indicates that there were two sanctuaries. One on earth and one in heaven. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they had a mobile sanctuary that they took around with them throughout the wilderness. It went with them wherever they traveled. And eventually they built a temple, a permanent structure. So there was an earthly sanctuary. And there's also the temple of God in heaven, the heavenly sanctuary. Now Daniel says that one day the sanctuary will be cleansed. During this year, and this is in the Hebrew economy in old Israel, during the year, I'm sorry, almost every day there would be sinners that would come down to the sanctuary where they'd bring their lamb or a similar sacrifice. Sinner would bring it down to the sanctuary, lean on his head, and then confess his sins. He'd lean on his head of the lamb. His sins would then be transferred from him to the lamb. Then they would slit the lamb's throat and the blood would spill out. The priest would then take some of this lamb's blood into the sanctuary. And he'd put some of it on the curtain or on the horns of the altar. What that symbolized was that the sin was going from the sinner, from the person to the lamb. It's transferring that sin to that sacrifice. And through the blood of the lamb, the sanctuary where the sin went on record. So that sin went from the lamb and then into the sanctuary. And this is how it was done throughout the year. Until the day the sanctuary was cleansed. And that took place on the Day of Atonement, or Judgment Day. On, on Judgment Day, there was a special ceremony which the high priest officiated. He would take the blood from the sanctuary, or into the sanctuary. Not for the first room now, though, the holy place, but into the most holy place. As he ministered the blood in the most holy place, the sanctuary was cleansed. The sin record was expunged. It was cleansed. On that day, the day of atonement, the sins were atoned for. And now the people were free in the sight of God. The sin record was gone. And they were at one with God again. And that was the cleansing of the sanctuary back then. So when Daniel wrote for 2,300 days, every Jew knew that there was going to be a judgment day. They had gone through this their entire lives. So God used the sanctuary to show the children of Israel his plan of salvation. He was revealing to them what his plan of salvation was going to be like through this sanctuary service. It was God's way of reaching the heart and showing his people what sin cost and that a lamb would one day come and take away the sins of the world. It was central to the whole Jewish way of life. This was to the core of their very being, this sanctuary service. Now, back in the beginning, there was no sanctuary. After being slaves in Egypt for many years, the Israelites were liberated and began their journey to the promised land. Turn me to Exodus chapter 25, page 75. Exodus chapter 25, verse 8. So 
God came to Moses and he said to them, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. So how wonderful is it? Think about this. God wanted to dwell amongst his people. He wanted to be with them. But he couldn't be with them in person, could he? Why? Sin. Remember, sin separated us from God. So this was his way. He was able to come to this sanctuary and be amongst his people. He couldn't be face-to-face with them, right? Because they were sinners. And then verse 9 says, According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. In other words, God come up with the plans for this sanctuary. Then he showed them and revealed them to Moses. And then God said, build the sanctuary and follow the plans that I've given you. He gave Moses the pattern. Now, the sanctuary had two rooms. The first room was called the holy place. The second smaller room was called the most holy place. The daily sacrifices centered around the holy place, while the most holy place was focused on that judgment day, on that day of atonement. Hebrews chapter 9. Turn there with me, please. 1153. Hebrews chapter 9. I'm going to start right at the beginning. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. It says, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service in the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant, overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. So this is describing the most holy place, which contained the Ark of the Covenant and the Ten Commandments. Above that Ark was called something something called the Mercy Seat, where God himself dwelled. The symbolism is amazing. God gave us Ten Commandments. Remember, we've talked about that now for a couple of messages, which he desires all of us to keep. The sad truth is that we've broken them. But right on top of the commandments, Right on top of the thing we violated is the mercy seat. It says if you fall short, you can be hopeful that there is mercy inside of God. It is wonderfully symbolic that God sits on the mercy seat and not on the Ten Commandments. Amen? Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 says, But now when these things had been thus prepared... The priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. Then notice in verse 24. Same chapter, just a little bit to the right. For Christ has not entered the holy places made with hands. Notice that. He has not entered the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God for us. So he has not gone into these copies, into these earthly, into this earthly sanctuary, is what, what uh, Paul's telling us here in Hebrews. He's in the presence of God for us. He's there representing us, not against us. He's there for you. Now think about that. Jesus himself is your advocate. He's your lawyer. The greatest lawyer you could ever have. Never loses a case. He says, I'll give you rest. Come to me. I'm here for you. I've offered you mercy. I've got grace to give freely. I've got mercy to dispense. Please take it. Jesus, the Bible says, is in a heavenly temple for the purpose of ministering on your behalf, on my behalf. Friends, I'm grateful we have a high priest. Amen? Turn me to Hebrews chapter 4, page 1150. Just back a couple of verse, a couple of chapters. Hebrews chapter four, verse fourteen. Once again, Paul. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Notice it specifically says that he has passed through the heavens. This is important in distinguishing which sanctuary the Bible is talking about. It's not the earthly sanctuary, right? Because that's not in heaven. He's passed through the heavens into that heavenly sanctuary. Continues, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows personally what we face every day. And he understands our trials and tribulations. He lived here as a man faced everything that we face. It's not some arbitrary God that doesn't know what you're going through. He lived it. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to, grace to help in time of need. It says, come boldly to the throne. It says, come expecting grace, is what boldly means. It says, come expecting it, because it's there freely to have. Friends, the Bible is very clear. We have a high priest in heaven, and we're invited to come boldly to him. The judgment is going to demonstrate that those saved were rightly saved, and those lost were rightly lost. It's going to show who the true believers are, who truly had saving faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, it's simple. And as I said, nothing to fear. The judgment doesn't change anyone's choices. This is important. It simply recognizes the choices we have made and ratifies the decisions we have made for or against Christ. But what about this date of this judgment we're talking about? Turn me back to Daniel chapter 8, page 866. Daniel chapter 8, verse 14. And he said to me, for 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Even Daniel didn't understand this message. Verse 15. 
Then it happened, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, that suddenly there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. Having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, who called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was afraid and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, son of man, that the vision refers to the time of the end. So the messenger's telling Daniel, it's not right now in your time. This vision's referring to the time in the end. This 2,300 days is going to end sometime out in the future. Now, the Hebrews were in captivity in Babylon. And Daniel thought that God might have been telling him that they were going to be in captivity for a lot longer. He heard heard this 2,300 days thing and thought, oh, my, we should be getting ready to come out of captivity because he was a student of prophecy. Verse 19, and he said, look, I am making known to you what shall happen in the latter time of the indignation, for that at the appointed time the end shall be. And then verse 26, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true. Therefore, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. So when Daniel got this vision, it was over 500 years before Christ. And God's telling him that the vision is for the time of the end. If this was a literal time, it would be about six or seven years. If you tried to figure out 2,300 days, literal time, it would only be five or six more years to Daniel. Now, if you're in Daniel's time and you stretch six or seven years, you're nowhere near the time of the end. Christ hasn't come yet. The first time. So God is using a prophetic symbol here. In prophecy, a day is used to represent a year. So in this instance, 2,300 days represents 2,300 years. You can see that explained in Ezekiel chapter 4. The Lord says, I have appointed thee each day for a year. And again in Numbers chapter 14, it says, each day for a year. So in Bible prophecy, one prophetic day equals one literal year. So now we know... This 2,300 days means 2,300 years. So to know how this impacts us, now we've got to go to Daniel chapter 9 for more information. There's the 2,300 days equal 2,300 years. Turn me now to Daniel chapter 9, verse 21. Page 868. Daniel chapter 9, verse 21. It says, Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. So God told Gabriel to go down to Daniel and explain this 2,300-day prophecy to him. Remember, he was confused, he didn't understand about what's going on here. So there's going to be a judgment day one day soon. Or I'm sorry, one day out in the future. And it's going to be after 2,300 years. Help Daniel understand this. That's what God's message was to Gabriel. Go help Daniel understand this prophetic calculation. So God shared this with Daniel through the angel Gabriel. Now we'll turn to verse 24. It starts out, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. So using that day for a year concept that we just established, God's saying, I'm giving Israel, 490 more years to come to repent. 
70 years or 70 weeks are set aside for your people. 70 times 7, 490 years. So Lord said, I'm going to give you 490 more years to come to repentance. Then Daniel 9, chapter 9, verse 25 gives us the beginning of the prophecy. If you can find the beginning of a prophecy, then you will know when judgment day is coming. Amen? So chapter 20, or verse 25 says, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The streets shall be built again in the wall, even in troublesome times. Not a single Jew would have any difficulty understanding this. This was the decree that allowed them to return from Babylon to Jerusalem. And they knew exactly where to find this decree in the Bible. And God was saying, from this decree to the coming of Messiah would be 69 weeks, or 483 years. Now Ezra chapter 7 verse 13 records that decree. The Persians were meticulous record keepers. So we know the decree was issued in the year 457 B.C. This is available in any secular history about Persia. So that's our starting date. 457 B.C. is going to be the starting of this 2300-year prophecy. So we start in 457 B.C., the decree to rebuild. And then you add 483 years, and you come to 27 A.D., Messiah the Prince. Now, that word Messiah means anointed one. And in 27 AD, Jesus was revealed to the world as Messiah when he was baptized by John the Baptist. Amen? Keep your finger in Daniel and go now with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verse 1, page 993. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being, being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria, in the region of Traconia, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. Now turn with me to verses 21 and 22. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also was baptized. And while he prayed, the heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son. In you I am well pleased. This is the anointing of Messiah. This is when he was presented to the world as Messiah, and God anointed him himself. Amen? The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar is A.D. 27. Again, this can be found in any secular history book. The Romans, just like the Persians, are meticulous history keepers. They kept records. That's why it says in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his Son. Turn me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So what time was he talking about? 
he was referring to that time prophecy that we're studying in Daniel 9. And he's announcing the Messiah, the coming of Messiah. He's saying the time is at hand. The academics in that day knew the time prophecy. They knew it cover to cover. They knew it was due to be fulfilled because they've been calculating it. And Jesus is here saying, it's me. The time was fulfilled. So back to Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, page 868. You kept your finger there? Great. Daniel chapter 9, verse 26. It says that Messiah would be cut off. So when was Jesus cut off? When he died on the cross. Verse 27 says that Jesus would confirm a covenant with many for one week. We, we know now that one week is what? Seven years, right? A week is seven days. Each day equals a year. So in the middle of the week, he would cause the sacrifice of the oblation to cease. So Jesus would be baptized and then would follow another seven years. In the midst of that seven years, the sacrificial system would come to an end, which happened when he died on the cross. He became the sacrificial lamb, remember? No longer did we need to go through that sanctuary service because Jesus now was that sacrifice. He died on the cross. Remember, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. God himself was telling people the sacrificial system was over with. It's done. And your sacrifices are no longer needed because the true Lamb of God had come and died for the sins of the whole world. Now let's look at this in a little more detail. There's the decree, 457 B.C., right? If you add 483 years, you come to Jesus' baptism in 27 A.D. He was then going to confirm this covenant with many for a seven-year period. But in the middle of that, something was going to happen. So we have that seven years cut in half. Right in the middle, Jesus will die on the cross. Now at the end of the seven-year period... The borders of Israel would be expanded. And salvation would then be offered to non-Jewish people. The rest of the world. Salvation would be offered to everybody. Until then, the early church was preaching almost entirely to the Jews. But when Stephen was martyred in 34 AD, the gospel was taken to the whole world. Acts chapter 13, verse 45 and 46 says, But when the Jews saw the multitude." They were filled with envy and contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. So they were jealous. They were upset. They thought they had this all sewed up to themselves, that they were God's special people. Nobody else could get access to this. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Friends, this was a very bold statement. And surely not received well by the Jews, amen? Basically, he's saying, you squandered your special position. You squandered it. I'm offering it to the whole world. You were meant to be a light to the whole world. You refused that. So God had given Israel 70 weeks to repent. 
When Israel chose not to assume its God-given place, the gospel was taken to the Gentiles. Now, this did not mean that Jews would no longer be saved. But the good news of the gospel was now to be taken to the world. The Jews would have, still have access to salvation, but it would be through Christ, not through the fact that they were the chosen people. Friends, this is a remarkable prophecy that's clearly fulfilled at every step. It demonstrates Jesus to be the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now notice this little fact. This prophecy was given to Daniel by Gabriel, who appears in the New Testament to bring the news of Jesus himself. He gave this prophecy in the first place. And it was centered in Jesus. And years later, Gabriel returned to Mary and Joseph to confirm the prophecy that he had brought millennia before. Now let's talk about this for a second. This message was misinterpreted once before. The believers back then had the prophecy in their scrolls. They had it in their hands, and they ignored it. And as a result, result the people rejected Jesus. They rejected their Messiah. They should have known of anybody they should have known. Instead, they rejected Jesus, and they selected Barabbas, a criminal. They chose an antichrist instead of Christ. Friends, we do not want to make that mistake again, amen? So let's complete the prophecy. The first 490 years out of the 2300 bring us to the year 34 AD. Right there, 34 AD. So let's add the remaining years and see when the Bible says that the judgment day would be. We take out the 490 years, we've got 1810 years left. So if you add in them 1810 years, when... You brings us to the year 1844 A.D. That's when judgment began in heaven. According to the prophecy, according to the Bible, not according to me, according to the Bible. This is when Jesus entered into his special work of judgment. So I know what your question is, right? Well, how long is this going to last? We don't know the answer to that. But we know it need not take much longer, amen? We know we're in the end. All the signs Jesus has given us are being revealed before our eyes. The signs of Jesus' soon coming are all around us. And this itself is another indicator of the shortness of time. Friends, this is not a prediction of the return of Jesus. I told you the first night I'm not going to do that because I don't know. The Bible tells us no man knows. But I do know that since 1844... Judgment has been taking place in heaven. I stand on the Bible for that conclusion. The next question, when will our names come up before God? Surely it won't be long. Friends, Jesus began a special work of judgment, the work of preparing a people to stand in the presence of Christ when he returns. This work of determining who really have chosen Christ as their Savior. The first part of this prophecy was given to prepare people for the first coming of Jesus. That was that first half of that prophecy. Or not half, but that first chunk. Preparing them for the first coming. The second part of this prophecy was given to prepare people for the second coming of Christ. Remember Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and give glory to Him. For the hour of His judgment has come. 
John was writing about our day right now. If you and Jesus are one, the judgment is wonderful news for you. It's the best news for you. If you're not sure of your place in the kingdom of heaven, now is the time to make your calling and your election sure. Now is the time to correct course. Now is the time to come to the Lord and accept his free gift of mercy. Now is the time to accept the truth, to accept his transformative power, to transform your characters, to transform you into a child of God. Friends, God loves every one of us. And he wants your heart as much as he wants the heart of anyone else. He will save you and he'll keep you close to him if you allow him to do so. Friends, it's not too late. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What that's saying is, that's Jesus' sole occupation right now. His sole interest, his only purpose is to make intercession for each and one of, every one of us. He's the high priest in heaven right now, and he's pleading your case. Or he's willing to plead your case if you'll ask him to. Are you willing to come to God tonight? Friends, salvation is simple. Let Jesus take your heart and make it new. It's simple. It doesn't cost you anything. But it will give you all the blessings of the world. Let Jesus take your heart and make it new. Let him renew your inner character. Jesus, as your high priest, will hold you up and fill your heart. He will give you a hope now and a hope for a bright tomorrow. I want to tell you a little story. At the Barcelona Olympics in 1992, Derek Redmond of Great Britain was one of the favorites in the men's 400 meters. He was expected to be one of the men challenging for the gold medal. Once around the track, he had poured his entire life into pursuing an Olympic gold medal. And now here he was in the semifinal, one step away from his shot at the gold medal. When the race started, he was running well. But running into the final turn, he felt a sharp pain in his leg. And before he knew what was happening, he was on the track with a torn hamstring. And the other athletes were running away, leaving. The worst of it was knowing that all his hopes, all of his dreams, had ended up in a heap in that red track in Barcelona, Spain. The medics came to help him, but he shooed them away. He wanted to finish his race. He got up in an agony, started to make his way towards the finish line. From the stands, a man wearing a t-shirt that said, have you hugged your kid today? Climbed over the barrier and went over to the runner. He said, son, you do not have to do this. Derek looked up into the face of his father and said, dad, yes, I do. His father said to them, son, if you're going to get there, we're going to have to do it together. So with Derek Redmond leaning on his father, he made his way to the finish line. Step by slow, painful step. The crowd was on its feet. And the loudest cheering of the Barcelona Olympic Games 
was not for a gold medal winner, but for one who limped to the end of the race, leaning on his father. Last place got the loudest ovation of the entire Olympic Games. Let me ask you this. Does this sound like something you've experienced in your life? You're running the race of your life. And before you know it, you're down, looking up. You've messed up again. And with a heavy heart, you find yourself saying, what will I do? How did I get myself in this mess? It's then that your father is at your side. And he says, he promises you, you can still make it to the finish line. But to do so, you have to do it together. You have to lean on your father. You have to lean on your heavenly father. Friends, it might be inch by inch. It might be step by painful step. It might be a struggle. There might be pain involved. But I promise you, if you lean on your heavenly father, you will make it to the finish line. You will make it to that judgment. You will make it to glory. If you lean on him, if you take his arm, friends, you will not make it alone. You cannot. We are not able to make it alone. But it's an easy path with the Lord. The problem is, is we stumble because we get ourselves away from the Lord. Then we get back with the Lord and things are okay. And then we take our eyes off the Lord again. The good news is that the Lord understands that. It's not a three strikes and you're out game. Keep coming to me. Trust me. Friends, you have a high priest in heaven who's begging to intercede for you. I ask you, if you haven't accepted the Lord in your heart, even if you have, renew your promise to the Lord. Renew your covenant with the Lord. Tell him, Lord, I'm giving everything to you. I cannot do this alone. And I promise you, he will happily take on your burdens. And he will happily grant you love and grant you mercy. Now I ask you, if you will accept that gift, please stand with me. Please, if you'll accept that free gift of mercy, please stand. Amen. Thank you so much. Friends, renew your covenant with the Lord. Turn your heart over to him. He can transform anything you've done. We've talked about all the Bible patriarchs, all the terrible things they've done. Turn them into great men, great servants for the Lord. He can do the same for you. Please bow your heads and let's close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Merciful Father, Lord, thank you so much for the opportunity to come before you. Thank you for all the blessings that you've given us. Thank you for the gift of your Son, the gift of salvation. Lord, we thank you so much for sitting on that mercy seat instead of standing on those Ten Commandments. And offering us that free gift of salvation and that free gift of forgiveness. Lord, I ask you also, to, we also thank you for the gift of prophecy. For the revealing of these truths. So that we know that you are God. And that you have kept your word throughout and you will always keep your word. Lord, I ask you now, please, send your Holy Spirit. Send your angels to all these dear souls. Lift them up. Keep them strong. Bring them closer to you. Wrap your arms around them and get them to the finish line. Lord, I ask you, please, keep them safe, keep them well, and keep them close to you. In Jesus' precious and holy name I pray, amen.